Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, a two-edged sword which pierces and divides and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we hear your word preached this morning, would you cut away all falsehood from our hearts? Would you fill us with the word of your truth? And would you equip us with everything good, everything needed for doing your will? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text. We're now entering Colossians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4, page 984 in the Pew Bibles. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This morning we enter a new section of Paul's letter to the Colossians as we start into chapter 3. On chapter 2, there was a focus on defending against false teachers. And now Paul starts into his positive, practical teaching. Asking, what does it look like to live the Christian life? To put all this into practice. At the same time, one major theme continues through from chapter 2 into chapter 3. Namely, union with Christ. You have been united to Christ through faith. And therefore, what is true of Christ and all that he accomplished, all that he experienced in his redemptive work is spiritually true of you through your union with Christ. Union with Christ is central to our understanding of this passage this morning. This union results in a new orientation to life, what we could call heavenly-mindedness. Now, the world mocks this idea. They scoff and they say, Christians are too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. There's a sense in which we might hear that critique and simply say, we expect the world to scoff, to mock, to hate us, just like they hated our Savior. But we also want to be careful that we understand this passage rightly, that we understand what true biblical heavenly-mindedness is, and that we do not fall into the very traps that Paul warned us about last time. If you remember, he warned us about asceticism, mysticism, legalism, because those can be false forms of heavenly mindedness, ways of denying this world that seem spiritual when they're actually worldly. They're actually disconnected from Christ the head. So this morning, we'll look at this passage in four parts. As we consider true heavenly mindedness, we'll see first, your new station, second, your new orientation, third, your mortification, and fourth, your hiddenness, and then revelation. So first, let's consider your 
new station. You have been raised with Christ. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This passage is beginning a whole chapter that's highly practical, as I said. And at the center of these verses are this twofold exhortation, a command to be heavenly minded. But this command is surrounded by a reminder of all that you have received through your union with Christ. And so Mark Johnston writes, God never tells his people to do anything for him without first reminding them of what he has done for them. We always see this principle in scripture. God takes the initiative and then we respond because our salvation is all of grace. However, note how Paul, he doesn't simply come out here and say, this is what God has done for you. He doesn't simply say that you have been raised with Christ. He says, if. Now, Paul clearly assumes this is true for the believers he's writing to. He's already written it. He's written this very thing back in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then in the very next verse, he repeats the same thing in a slightly different way. He says, God made you alive together with Christ. That's undisputable. This is true for you, believer. However, Paul uses an if statement here to make you engage with his line of reasoning. He wants to make you think. Consider, if A is true of you, is it true of you? Of course it is. You know it is. If A is true of you, then B must necessarily follow. Some translations, they translate it, since you have been raised with Christ. But that wouldn't make you think it out for yourself. Now consider what Paul is saying here. He is describing your union with Christ. You have died with Christ. He'll remind you of that in a moment in verse 3. And you have been raised to new life. But not only do you share in his power, the power of his resurrection, in the newness of life, but he is saying something even more. For next he points to where Christ now is. He is ascended. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Now this is a reference to Psalm 110 verse 1. It's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a messianic prophecy describing Jesus after his ascension as he now sits in the place of glory, the place of honor, the place of highest favor at the right hand of the Father. But what Paul is implying here is not only that you have been raised from the dead in Christ, but that you have been raised all the way up to heaven itself, spiritually united to the ascended Lord. As he puts it in Ephesians 2.6, And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I hear it's crucial to remember that when Scripture says, You have been raised with Christ, it's not just making a metaphor. It's not just a fancy illustration of something that's sort of kind of true. This is a spiritual reality. Now, it does require the eyes of faith 
to grasp this reality, but this is your station in Christ. You have died. You have been raised. You are united to Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven. If this is true, and it is true for all of you who have put your trust in Christ, how must that change your life? Well, it will give you a whole new perspective on life. It gives you a radically new heavenly orientation. When you're hiking a mountain, most of the time you can just see the path ahead of you winding through the trees. You can just see up to the next bend. But occasionally you'll come around a break in the trees on the side of the mountain where a wider vista will open up. You get a little bit of perspective on how high you've climbed, but it's not until you get to the summit that you get that full 360-degree view that gives you a whole new perspective on things. And you look around and you see the towns, the roads, the buildings, the cars, and they all seem so small. And you stand there on the mountaintop and you reflect and your everyday problems, they seem smaller in comparison to the grandeur of God's creation that surrounds you. But standing on a mountaintop is small compared to the perspective shift that comes with a heavenly orientation, truly seeing things from all the way up above. And here it says that the necessary consequence of being raised with Christ is that you not only see things from above, but you must seek the things which are above, where Christ is and where you have been united to him. In order to seek the things above, first, you must know, what are the things above? What is Paul talking about here? Well, clearly the things above are reference to heaven, and Paul clearly designates at least two things above right here. He says, God the Father and Jesus Christ at his right hand. There's another mention of heaven in this letter, back in chapter 1, verse 5, where he speaks of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the hope that you will one day dwell with God in heaven. When we consider these two things together, we realize that seeking the things in heaven, it cannot mean that you are seeking to gain or possess heaven. It's already your inheritance because you are trusting in Christ. He has promised you eternal life. And really, when you think about it, what is heaven? More than anything, it is the place where God himself dwells. And everything else we know about it, everyone else who is there is only there because God is there. Yes, there are angels, there are humans in heaven, but they are there to serve and to worship God. They are there because God is there. And one day when Christ returns, heaven will, in a sense, come down in the new heavens and the new earth because the promise is that God will dwell with man in the new Jerusalem. But even then, even the new Jerusalem will in some sense be heaven because God will be there. And so consider the false teachers that we learned about last time. They were seeking heavenly visions. They were worshiping angels. So while in one sense it might seem like they were seeking things above, they were actually missing the whole point because they were not holding fast to Christ. Heaven is all about God. 
And the angels are only there to serve and to worship God through Jesus Christ. And if you miss that, you've missed everything. And so when you ask the question, what does it mean to seek the things above? It's not about visions of angels. It's about seeking the Lord who dwells in heaven. Knowing and loving God the Father through Jesus Christ his Son. And so I think of some of the Psalms that embody this. Consider the opening of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's about setting your heart on the Lord, seeking to know him, to worship, to love him. Or perhaps you know the words of Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, sometimes I read those verses and I say, Lord, this is not true of me as, I, as it ought to be. I don't know that I can say there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. But work in my heart cleared of idols that you might reign supreme in my heart. Now, from this exhortation to seek the things that are above, Paul then gets more specific. He adds to this, he says in verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Here we see that this is to be a continual habit where we focus our thoughts, we direct our minds. Since Paul is contrasting heaven and earth here, the question naturally arises, is he saying we could never think about anything that is here on earth? Does this mean that children can't pay attention to their schoolwork? That you can't attend to your job? That moms can't set their minds on caring for their children because those are things on earth? Now, obviously, we know that can't possibly be what Paul means here because you need to live out your earthly callings, whatever that might be in your current stage of life. Now, later in this very letter, Paul will command us all to work hard on this earth, but always to work first and foremost to please the Lord and only secondarily for any earthly employer or client. And that actually gives you some insight into what it means to set your minds on the things above and not on the things on earth. For while you do your work, what is your ultimate motivation? What are you living for? Who are you seeking to please? In everything you do, the answer to that should be, first and foremost, the Lord. Now, the Lord may direct you to serve him on earth in many very practical, hands-on ways so that you're not necessarily spending 12 hours a day, seven days a week, reading scripture and praying. You're probably not called to be a monk but when you're doing your ordinary work, whatever that is, whether it's caring for children, going to school, working in an office, or working with your hands, you can do that work for the Lord with your sights set on pleasing Him. But always you must remember who you are, 
whose you are, that you no longer belong to this world which is passing away. You are united to Christ above. Or as Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Where Jesus puts it in his high priestly prayer in John 17, we remain in the world, but we are not of the world. Let your new identity in Christ shape your mindset. Let it shape your approach to everything you do. Now, some people in this world, especially atheists, will say that if you have this heavenly hope, this heavenly perspective, then you will never really care about this world. You'll be no earthly good. You'll never be able to really get down to work, settle down to make this world a better place because your head will be up in what they call fantasy land, dreaming of going off to a better place. They say you need to accept the cold, hard fact that this world is all there is, and only then will you give your all to making this world the best that it can possibly be. But here's the simple counter-argument to that. If this world is all there is, then there is no basis for morality. Sure, you can live for others. You can live to make the world a better place if you feel like it. But if you feel like living for yourself, taking advantage of others, raping and pillaging the earth, doing whatever you can get away with, what's to stop you in the atheist's worldview? For them, there's no ultimate justice. There's no one to hold you accountable. It's just an exercise of raw power. You have one life and then... Existence ends. So perhaps you want to serve others in the future with that life, or perhaps pure, unadulterated selfishness is a better approach. But as Christians, we see things differently. We have an ethic of love. We love because God first loved us. And we are called to sacrifice ourselves because Christ sacrificed himself for us on the cross. What a radical difference this makes to the way we live our lives in this world from those who have no hope, no future, and believe that this world is all there is. So yes, we are called to seek the things above. We seek to know the Lord, to please Him. And we set our minds on the things above. We fill our minds with thoughts about the Lord and what He has said in His Word, and we let this direct our behavior. But this does not mean that we shirk our responsibility to live productive lives, loving and serving the Lord, loving and serving those around us on the earth. We do this first and foremost for Him. And when we live with God as our first priority, we will love and serve our neighbors well. It's only when you are truly heavenly-minded that you become the most earthly good. After this command to set your minds on the things above, Paul continues to give further support for why you must have this heavenly perspective. And that brings us to our third point this morning, your mortification. Verse 3 begins, For you have died. This continues this theme of your union with Christ. And Logically, it actually precedes your being raised with him. Again, it's a reminder of what Paul has already said earlier in this letter. 
Back in chapter 2, verse 11, he said, you are circumcised with Christ, and that points to your dying with Christ on the cross. And last time we saw how he built on this, that you died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world. Chapter 2, verse 20. The point is that in dying with Christ, you have died to your old sinful nature. You've been set free from sin who used to be your master. Now in the next paragraph, which we'll look at next week, we'll see more of the implications of this. That you need to put to death all that is earthly in you. All the sinful vices that cling to you from your old life. Because you died to these old ways of living. Christ hasn't come to just cover up the old you with a thin veneer of godliness. He says, no, the old you has to die so that the new you can be raised to life. Everything must change. But you see this morning that it begins with a change of goals. You must seek that which it is, which it, seek the things above and a change of mindset. You must set your mind on the things above. So you start in the heart and mind, and then the rest of your life and behavior flows from there. And fourth, we have your hiddenness and revelation in Christ. So reading again verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In these verses, we see a contrast between how your life is currently hidden with Christ, but in the future, you will, be, you will appear or be revealed in glory. Hidden and then revealed. But in, in between contrasting these two states, Paul says something. It's almost in passing. Something so profound that's worth spending a few moments meditating on. He says, Christ is your life. Grasping this truth, it's so crucial to the Christian life, so crucial to true heavenly mindedness. Christ is your life. We could probably spend hours fully unpacking all that this means, but just consider a few things. Christ is the source of your life. Christ is the one who dwells in you to give you fullness and abundance of life. Christ is the purpose of your life. He is the one that you serve. And Christ is the goal of your life. You live that you might know him, that you might love him more and be with him and enjoy him forever. I could go on. Paul writes in Philippians 121, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your life is Christ and to die is just to enjoy life with Christ in another way. This idea comes up Again, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here, your life is Christ in the sense that Christ lives in you and he lives through you as you live to serve him. Your life is is Christ. Now what does Paul mean when he says that your life is hidden with Christ in God? Now first of all, it means that all the all the glory that you are and that you have received through your union with Christ, it's it's hidden. 
It's not seen for a time until the full revelation that is to come. Compare this to what Paul said using similar language in chapter 1 about the gospel. He says the gospel, it was a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The fullness of, of what Christ would do, it was not known for, for many ages. So also there is a certain aspect to your glorious identity, that you have been united to Christ, that you have been raised with him, seated in the heavenly places, that you have been justified, adopted as sons of the king, and yet this world will not recognize that until you appear with him in glory. But for now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Every few years, a person will die, and only upon their death will some great secret be discovered. In 2015, a former janitor and gas station attendant died in Vermont, and only upon his death was it discovered that through his great frugality and wise investment, his estate was worth $8 million. But this was hidden. Nobody knew until he died that he was a millionaire. When it comes to your Christian identity, the world should see the marks of your Christian life. They should know us by our love, by our transformed heart, mind, and life. But these things will only ever be partial in this life. But the fullness of our identity in Christ, that you are a child of the King, this will be hidden except to the eyes of faith. Now that's one aspect. The second aspect to this hiddenness is that something is hidden it, it is also hidden in order to be protected. It is secure. Psalm 27, 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high on a rock. Consider what is the most precious thing you possess. Is it not life itself? And then think if you wanted to store your life in the safest place. Where would you put it? Would you hide it under your bed? Would you put it in a safe? Would you lock it in the highest security bank vault? Here we see something more secure than any place on earth. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. No one can touch that. There is no greater security than to know that your life is hidden with Christ in God. For now, your life is hidden with Christ. Then it says, when he appears, when he returns in glory, you too will appear with him in glory. Scripture describes how this means a transformation of your body. Whether Christ comes while you are still living, or whether you've died and he resurrects you from the grave, as we read in Philippians 3.21, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. At this time, not only will all behold Christ in his glory, but it will be revealed at that time all those who belong to Christ, as you will share in his glory, as you will be made just like him. This is the moment when you will come into the fullness of your heavenly inheritance, the transition from this present age to the age to come, when God will dwell with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Now Paul is reminding us of this here. 
Because this heavenly hope, it serves to motivate you to seek the things that are above now. It motivates you to keep your mind set on the things above because you know Christ is coming. Glory is coming. And though the fullness of Christ's glory is not seen, for now it is hidden in heaven, it will be revealed. And though the fullness of all that you possess in him is seen now only by the eyes of faith, on that day it will be fully revealed. And so until that day, you must walk by faith. Seek the things above. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. One of the great biblical examples of living this out is our father in the faith, Abraham. The author of Hebrews tells his story like this, how he walked by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews chapter 11. Even though Abraham lived in the land that the Lord swore to give to his descendants, even though the Lord blessed him with many good things in this world, he always had his sights set on something greater. He longed to dwell with God. He had his heart set on things above. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, Psalm 84. So what are you seeking today? Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. You have died with him You have been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ is your life, and he is your eternal inheritance. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how can we ever thank you enough for all that you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ? We rejoice in the fullness of all the spiritual blessings that we have received through our union with him. Only help us now to know Christ more, that we might love you more, that we might praise you more, that we might give you all the glory that you are worthy of. Help us, Father, to truly seek the things which are above, to set our minds always on the things above, to not be distracted by the things on earth, except that we know you have given us a vocations on this earth and help us to be faithful for your sake in your service. In everything we do, Lord, we, plea- we seek to please you, our Lord. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.